Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Since setting up its audio unit in 2016, the New York Times has been using podcasts as a way of attracting a younger audience and to reinforce its reputation for good journalism. Audio lets its reporters showcase their expertise and their personalities in a very different way than simply having their name on the byline of a written article. So a few weeks back, we featured the series Caliphate, which gives listeners an insight into some of the challenges of reporting on Islamic State. Meanwhile, the New York Times Daily News show called The Daily has proved a major hit. It's currently sitting at number two in the US podcast charts with five million monthly listeners and annual advertising revenue reported to be worth more than 10 million US dollars. And other media organisations are trying to emulate its success. Just this week, The Guardian, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and NZME, the publisher of the New Zealand Herald, have all launched their own daily news podcasts. Each episode of The Daily comes in at a digestible 20-odd minutes, and it's ready to listen to early each weekday in the US in time for the morning commute. Host Michael Barbaro interviews some of the Times' best journalists about the big news stories of the day, with a team of producers editing their chats and embellishing them with music and audio clips. Here's a story about climate change with Michael Barbaro speaking to journalist Nathaniel Rich about a missed opportunity to tackle global warming, the US's refusal to enter into an international treaty to control CO2 emissions nearly 30 years ago. Nathaniel, what went wrong here? How do you understand the Bush administration's opposition to participating in something that the entire scientific community, as well as the vast majority of the rest of the world, agree is an existential threat to all of us that has to be addressed by all of us? Well, there's a simple political explanation, which is that the chief of staff, Johnson Nunu, won this political fight within the White House. But I think you can also ask, well, why was the level of support, the, the political and public support for solving the problem not strong enough to overcome one man uh, the, the will of yeah of, of one man who wasn't even the president and i think that leads you into some larger questions about our ability to grapple meaningfully with a problem of such enormous stakes and a problem whose ramifications wouldn't be felt for decades or even generations we talk about the effects of climate change, we're talking about civilizational death. Hmm. And I don't think we like looking at that in the face. And so we do whatever we can not to. Our responsibility is to main the quality, maintain the quality of our approach, our commitment to sound science, and an open mind to policy options. By 1990, Bush's entire economic council comes out against climate policy. 
At the same time, ExxonMobil has long been criticized for allegedly hiding what it knew about climate change. Just today, a pair of researchers say that Exxon's own documents prove that is true. The oil and gas industry mobilizes on the issue and develops a strategy and a campaign of funding disinformation propaganda. To assess ExxonMobil's public statements, it cast doubt on whether climate change was real, it discounted human impacts, and they suggested there was nothing practical to do about it anyway. Paying off scientists and politicians and ultimately the entire Republican Party to embrace this notion of uncertainty in the science. You know, uh, are you convinced I, that climate change is man-made? Well, I uh, look. I I don't know that that is a resolved issue in science today. And ultimately, to deny the existence of climate change altogether. We keep hearing that 2014 has been the warmest year on record. I asked the chair, "You know what this is? It's a snowball, and that's just from outside here." So it's very, very cold out, very unseasonal. So here, Mr. President, catch this. I don't buy that, Joe. What I do you mean you don't, don't buy it? I just don't buy, the fact, I don't buy the fact that it's a crisis. So Obama's talking about all of this with the global warming and, the, that, and a lot of it's a hoax. It's a hoax. I mean, it's a money-making industry, okay? As a result of industry's efforts, the politics around the issue become sharply divided. For those who believe this, it would have to be dealt with on a worldwide basis. So let's take a look at that. Even if you believe that that is a serious problem that needs to be addressed, one country doing it is going to have no impact. Why has it taken so long, Senator? Special interest. It's a special interest. It's the utility companies and uh, the petroleum companies and the other special interests. They're the ones that, that have blocked uh, progress in the, in the Congress of the United States and in the administration. At the same time, the seas continue to rise and natural disasters continue to occur at increasing frequency. There are reports from New Orleans of uh, people trapped in buildings that have come down around them. They what have happened? Made... <laughs> the head just split in half. Your house split in half? Hurricane Sandy threatening a massive stretch of the U.S. from Virginia to New England all the way to the Great Lakes. So this is the highest the water has ever gotten here uh, in New York City. The monumental flooding and humanitarian disaster continues to unfold after Harvey. With some... The island of Barbuda was once a Caribbean paradise. Hurricane Irma has reduced it to rubble. All 14 Caribbean community countries together produce less than 0.1% of global emissions. We are the least of the polluters, but the largest of the casualties. Now to Maria. This is the one I am most frightened about. Damn it, this is not a good news story. This is a people are dying story. And temperatures keep getting warmer. More than 50 million Americans are under excessive heat warnings and it's not gonna end anytime soon. At least 22,000 people have been treated in hospital for heat stroke. At least 10 large fires are burning across the state. The ranch fire has devoured 351,000 acres, making it the largest wildfire in state history. Excessive heat is also a threat thousands of miles away in Europe. In Lisbon, Portugal, the mercury peaked at 111 degrees. The highest temperature ever measured in Britain was recorded at Heathrow Airport this afternoon. It reached 37.9 degrees Celsius, or more than 100 Fahrenheit. And in Frankfurt, Germany, the thermometer reached 97. Japan is fighting 
pushing back against the heat wave that is striking many parts of the country. Famine threatens Somalia for the second time this decade. Kariat, Oman, had a temperature. Over the last 24 hours, it never dropped below 108.7 degrees. If this verifies, it would set the record for the hottest minimum temperature across the entire world. So that happened this morning when they woke up. A climate change story from The Daily, from The New York Times, featuring Nathaniel Rich, and uh, he was interviewed by Michael Barbaro. Claire Tennisgetter is one of ten producers working on the show, and she told me how The Daily started and how it comes together each day. In 2016, The New York Times decided to start their own podcast unit. They hired a few people who had worked in public radio, and they started piloting some narrative podcasts. And then, at the same time... Trump was elected. And there was kind of a shift in mindset amongst the team that rather than doing long form narrative storytelling, we needed to also do a daily news show that there was such a hunger after Trump was elected for daily news consumption from podcast listeners. So then the daily ended up being a what we call narrative news show, that it comes out every day and it, it looks at the news of the day, but it does it in a, in a narrative way rather than just reading you the headlines and having a host who knows everything and is filling you in on the news. We take the listener behind the news and sit down with our New York Times reporters and go through the story and build it throughout the chronology of what's happening in the news. So the correspondent, the journalist, almost takes centre stage, don't they, in a way that they don't really, I guess, in the print version of the New York Times. They're, they're kind of invisible and objective, aren't they, in that process? Exactly. That, that was the idea when we launched The Daily, that The Times has all these reporters. We have this built-in kind of untapped audio resource that we have experts on everything. We have experts around the world in Washington, D.C. and New York City. And right now they're just bylines on pages that people aren't, necessarily paying attention to when we want to bring them to life and and hear their voices and really have them walk us through the news of the day rather than just reading the print pieces. You mentioned the Trump election. Was that really a, a major stimulus? You know, the fact that people were exercised about the election and the result and about Trump coming to power. Was that really the major stimulus then for the daily setting up? I was working at a public radio station at the time, but the story that's been told to me, I I came on a year ago, but when it did start, it was Michael Barbaro, who was the host of The Daily, started hosting a a political podcast called The Runoff, and that started to kind of garner attention and build a little bit of an audience, and we realized that we could put something out every single day, that that there would be an audience for it, and that if we were going to launch daily news in a podcast form now is the time, right after Trump was elected, that now there was definitely an appetite for it. It's a great irony, isn't it, for all of Trump's criticism of the media and of journalists. He's he's actually been pretty good for business, hasn't he? Yes. It, it, I say to myself sometimes that I wonder if I would have this job if Trump hadn't been elected, because maybe the team wouldn't have grown so much. And like I said, I came on about six months into the daily, and I'm not sure if I would have this job if Trump wasn't our president. And and each one of the episodes is roughly around 20 minutes, isn't it, uh, of the daily? How did did you come up with that duration as being desirable? So the 20-minute ideal podcast length is something that's... I'm not sure where the research comes from, but just this idea that 
the, the average commute time that we, we looked at longer podcasts and when listenership really starts to drop off. And it's usually between the 15 and 25 minute mark. So we thought 20 minutes was both a digestible amount that people can get through it in their morning commutes. And also, it's it's something that we can make in a day, because if we were going to make a highly produced 60-minute episode every single day, that might be uh, biting off a little more than our team of producers could, could chew. So 20 minutes was ideal, we think, for, for both listeners and our production staff. Because as well as the central interview with the journalist or the correspondent with Michael Barbaro, which of course is pre-recorded and presumably has to be edited together, you will often drop in news cuts and, and little audio clips as you go, which are kind of tends, I guess, to make it a little more engaging and interactive. Exactly. So we, we typically, I can walk you through a day. So we typically go to the, the New York Times, all, all the head editors from all the different desks of, of the New York Times we meet every morning, and we have one representative from the daily team that goes to that meeting. We figure out what stories are coming out that day, what we think will be driving the news of the day, and then we meet as a team of producers and editors and pick a story to focus on the daily for the next morning. And then we go out and plan the story. We start looking for archival clips, clips of the day, clips in other news sources, and we're watching C-SPAN here, the government news channel, looking, watching Trump talk, watching whatever newsmakers talk. And then we go ahead and record the interview with our reporter. Typically, we record for between 60 and 90 minutes for an episode that ends up being 20 minutes. So we do a lot of editing. We do a lot of, uh, we call it building when we're adding all, all the archival sound to, to really make a piece sing. And does the reporter do that after they filed their print story? So is it is it done while all the details and everything is fresh in the mind, or do you give them a chance to kind of decompress and do it the following day? <laughs> it totally depends. So sometimes the print piece is already out, and then we record with the reporter afterwards. There are other times when we're just kind of begging reporters to, to give us 30 minutes of time while they're on deadline and, and trying to file their story. It, it depends on how how big of a story it is. If the story is, is just breaking, we we might quickly record something. It, it really depends. There are stories, too, where we work with the reporter from the ground up and we'll send a producer in the field somewhere. And we're helping them shape the story, and sometimes that actually will change the print narrative, where there are other times when they're completely finished and then we jump in and, and make it into a radio piece. And, and so it can be a challenge sometimes because when you write a, a print story as a reporter, you're usually telling the entire story in the first two paragraphs, like all the key details, and then the rest of the piece is breaking it down, getting all the details, different reactions. Whereas when we convert it to audio, we kind of have we want to start wherever the clock starts. We're always thinking of the chronology and each each beat we want to hit and and telling the story more like you would tell a story to a friend at a bar rather than getting all the important details out in in the first three minutes of the podcast. I'm trying to think of the conversations you must have with journalists, you know, when they're on deadline and saying, oh, look, can you just spare half a, half an hour to have a chat? It would be, there would probably be some quite difficult conversations. You get the feeling most of the journalists, they quite enjoy the opportunity to spread their wings a bit and do, do something a little bit different. Definitely. I think now the journalists really appreciate being able to come on the daily and they like there is good feedback when they're on the daily. I think when the daily was first starting out, it was harder to ask reporters to to take big chunks out of their time, especially working in a newspaper, working in in media. 
there's always an effort to have journalists do as much as they can, you know, do some videos, do extra interviews, and then to come in and say, we're making this podcast, you're not necessarily going to get anything out of it. We just need all your time. So (laughs) give us 60 minutes and talk to us. At first, that was hard. But then as the podcast started to take off, now reporters come to us and they're really eager to experiment, to be on the podcast, to use their audio. How far in advance do you plan stories? I mean, have you got an idea of what's going to be on next week or is it very much done kind of day to day and breaking news comes in and then you cover that? And and how does that work, the planning kind of aspect? It's it's a mix. So there are some stories that we know are coming a couple weeks ahead and we can embed with the reporters more and, and really build them out. And there are others that we're turning around in 12 hours, 24 hours. So, for example, today I'm working on a story that we just started at 10 a.m. and it's got to be finished by 5 a.m. tomorrow morning. It's just a really quick turnaround news story. Whereas this this climate story... We started in early August, and then it came out on August 31st. So I had a few weeks to actually work with the reporter, figure out what exactly we wanted to be in the piece, to find all this archival audio from the 1980s and and, and build it and give it the time that it needed. Claire Tennisgetter, who's a producer for The Daily at The New York Times. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.